The Wicked Library is brought to you by Sanitary Magazine. Sanitary Magazine showcases original horror fiction and dark verse alongside news, reviews, and interviews. Now weekly as of June 1st. SanitaryMagazine.com Also brought to you by Shadows at the Door. Shadows at the Door is an ever-growing collection of haunted stories inspired by the ghastly, the ghoulish, and the macabre. You can enjoy the pleasing terrors and similar content at shadowsatthedoor.com. Also brought to you by Rickert and Beagle Books. Rickert and Beagle Books is a new, used, and rare bookstore located in Dormont, PA, specializing in science fiction, fantasy, horror, and weird nonfiction. Visit them on the web at rickertandbeaglebooks.com. Warning, the Wicked Library contains adult themes, adult situations, adult language, and graphic depictions of terror, bloodshed, the occasional possession, and your future trips to your psychiatrist, so he or she can assure you it's only a story. This podcast is intended for mature audiences only. You've been warned, kiddies. <laughs> Hello, kiddies. Have a seat and relax. I am your librarian. There's nothing to be afraid of, yet. Hold on to yourselves, boils and ghouls. This is going to be a dark ride. We'll leave the lights on for now. No talking. It's story time at the Wicked Library. <laughs> is Wolfgar, named after the father he will never know. His mother tells him this is true, and he does not doubt her, for she is the alpha female, the bitch of the pack, and her word is law. He is the alpha male, eldest of the four siblings, and as such is responsible for the well-being of the pack. This is a great honor. Wolfgar lines his two brothers up before him. They are not yet as big as he, having lived only two cycles to his five. He stares at them with his deep brown eyes, set high on his face. They appear slanted under hairy, heavy brows. His brothers wait, their own eyes downcast in obedience, tails tucked and twitching halfway between the two legs they stand on. He speaks to them in short barks and growls from deep in his chest. The pack has depleted most of its hunting area over the last few years, and he gives them permission to increase the range of their hunt greater than ever before. He completes his instructions, and he licks each of them along the side of their long muzzle, and they set off into the surrounding forest, disappearing into the thick wood like mist on a warm day. With his brothers gone, only his sister remains to be dealt with. She was the runt of the litter that produced her and his two brothers, and he gives her the task of cleaning the old carcasses from the den storage area. He needs to make room for the new food that he hopes will come back. 
he drags the rotting remains into the woods and tosses them down into a ravine, showing her what he expects. Satisfied she understands, Wolfgar leaves her to work and seeks their mother. Their den, a linear series of six caves, is halfway up a mountain and extends deep into the earth. Wolfgar's cave is next to the last in this line, and their mother's is the last. He arrives at her quarters, finds her naked and reclining in her bed of sticks and leaves. She smells of dirt and blood, raw meat and shit. But his sensitive nose picks up the undercurrent that travels the air. His semen, her desire, and the musky wetness between her legs. His penis hardens when she beckons him closer. He whimpers and obeys, eyes devouring her pale, hairless white skin as he moves forward. His tail wags in quick, short bursts. He is hopeful that she will lay with him again, will press her small, heated body against his thick, mud-colored fur. Her hands, pale caricatures of his, are jointed the same, but where his are tipped in claws, hers are rounded, delicate. Wolfgar knows they are different, but his earliest memories are of her face, her smell, her kiss. She is his mother. You must kill the beast today, Wolfgar, she tells him when he reaches her and settles on his haunches. The pack depends on it. The beast. It hunts, as the pack does, and is as responsible for the lack of food as they are. It arrived two seasons ago as his mother gave birth to their litter and has moved unchallenged through the forest. Now, without much food left, there is worry that it will hunt the pack. Wolfgar has tried warning the creature by urinating on trees and trails, only to be ignored. He tried a more visceral approach by defecating in their hunting area, and again his warnings went unheeded. When last he saw the beast... Wolfgar stood his ground, growled and bared his long canines. The great creature observed him for some time before ambling away, unhurried. Wolfgar thought it had gone, for there had been no sign of it for weeks, no claw marks high in the trees or fallen limbs torn to pieces, no decomposing carcasses left where they were killed. Until two nights ago, when his brother had returned from the woods with the head of a deer and nothing else in his hands. He leans and nuzzles his mother, licking her face and shoulders to show he understands the importance of what she wants. She reaches down and grips his firmness in her hands and licks him as he licked his brother's. Her tongue is short and thick compared to his, which is long and thin. She releases him and scratches behind his pointed ears. He groans at her affectionate behavior, shows sharp pointed teeth and tip of tongue in a pant. Kill the beast, she breathes to him. Now go. He rears up to his full height, nearly six and a half feet, and howls. The sound pierces the air like a bird in the dawn. He lopes through the den and starts his hunt. Wolfgar travels the forest, his two clawed feet finding easy purchase on the ground. The pads on the bottoms cushion his run, silently embedding the dead leaves and twigs into the ground instead of crushing or breaking them. The trees are a blur in his peripheral vision, the sky a greenish blur above. He has seen few birds flying through the air, seemingly weightless, and he believes they must feel as he does when he runs. 
As much as the air belongs to them, the forest is his. And here, he is free. The wet nose at the end of his snout twitches and jerks with the new scent that infiltrates it during his flight. He smells the bark of the oak, elm, and sycamore, as well as their leaves underfoot. The rot of a dead rabbit 15 feet to his left, and faintly, still further ahead, the grungy aroma of his bait. His plan is simple. Distract the beast with the one thing it cannot get enough of. Food. As he nears his prey, Wolfgar slows his run to a long stride and comes to a stop next to a tree. In a clearing ahead, an elk forages the ground for edible grass and other debris. It moves with a perfect, easy union of muscle, tendon, and bone. Its horn rack is impressive, sprouting more points than Wolfgar has claws. This one has lived a long life. The elk ambles through the forest, sniffing and nibbling. Wolfgar follows, staying behind and downwind of its scent range. He does not understand the passage of minute time and only knows he must wait. The beast is not yet close. The sun travels across the sky as he maintains his surveillance, and as it begins to dip toward the earth, the hackles on his shoulders rise. The creature he must kill has come close and Wolfgar's body vibrates as his muscles tense. He wants to rush and confront it now and not play this game, but he knows that to catch it and kill it, he must first entice and trick it. To do otherwise means death. Wolfgar lets the beast roam closer until he hears the crinkle of leaves and the crack of branches in its passage until he can feel the heavy air pushed out with each of its breaths, even though it's not yet in his view. It makes no effort to hide. The elk becomes aware soon after Wolfgar, and sensing danger, it bends back at the knees, bunching leg muscles, preparing to flee. Wolfgar snarls and attacks. The elk springs away, but Wolfgar is too fast. He strikes it from the side, and he feels its innards compact from the force of his body. His clawed hands come up and grip the horns. Arm muscles spasm, and he stops the elk in an instant. The animal thrashes, kicks cloven feet at him, even as Wolfgar puts pressure on the horns, twisting the neck almost completely around. He bites into its flank. The hot flow of blood charges him, and he strikes again and again, creating new wounds all down the animal's back. He needs it to bleed. The elk staggers forward a few feet before death strikes, and its front legs buckle, then collapse. Wolfgar bears it to the forest floor before vivisecting it with his claws. Entrails and blood coat the ground. The scent will bring the beast. His wait is not long. The beast, a massive furred body walking on four legs, each as thick as a tree trunk, comes into view directly across from him. A mammoth neck supports a large brown head ending in a short snout. Further down its body, the hair changes color from brown to black, almost red near the stubby tail. The two masters of the forest watch each other for a long moment, and then it starts toward the dead elk, growling its intent at Wolfgar. It will be taking this meat. You must kill the beast. Wolfgar stands his ground 
continues to face his adversary and replies with a low snarl, vibrating his tongue against his teeth to produce his own volumatic message. This food is mine, and I will kill for it. The creature's small ears twitch in understanding of Wolfgar's warning, and just as the last time they met, it ignores Wolfgar. The animal pulls up on its hind legs and roars. At full height, it is at least a foot taller than Wolfgar, and is five times heavier. Wolfgar growls, lowers his hands and feet, and circles the dead elk. His enemy drops to all fours again, and taunts Wolfgar by mimicking his growl. Wolfgar locks stares with the beast, and tenses his muscles in apprehension. He has watched it kill on several occasions, knows how it attacks, and he waits. Patience and distance are the only two things that will keep him alive. He cannot hope to beat this creature in a physical fight. It charges without warning, speeding toward him, four claws slamming the ground in a furious drumbeat of death. It tramples the carcass, snapping bones like whips and parting ruined flesh like wet paper. Wolfgar is ready. He springs forward, up and over his aggressor. The beast attempts to adjust for his movement, pushes up onto its hind legs, and sweeps a forearm backward. Wolfgar feels the wind rustle the hair on the backs of his legs as it misses. Overbalanced, the beast topples and lands with a crushing thud on its side, trapping a front leg underneath its bulk, and through its loud grunt of pain, Wolfgar hears the faint pop of a dislocating joint. Struggling back to all fours, it moves gingerly, avoiding the injured one. Wolfgar slides slowly to the side, watching the animal. It chuffs at him, knowing it can no longer fight, and prepares to leave the kill. There is resentment in its eyes, and for the first time, fear. You must kill the beast. Wolfgar remembers his mother's words but he cannot underestimate his enemy. Even wounded, it is powerful, a force to be reckoned with. He growls and advances, each step a measured movement designed to antagonize and keep the creature in front of him. His opponent, realizing there will only be one left alive after this confrontation, halts its retreat. It places the injured leg firmly in the mush of the forest floor and pushes onto its hind legs, roaring in defiance. Blood-frothed spittle sprays from between large, rust-colored teeth. Wolfgar throws his head back and howls his intent to the cool afternoon sky. His arms flex outward as he charges. The creature stands tall and passive, waiting. The ground thunders with Wolfgar's approach, and at the last minute he drops to the ground under deadly swiping arms. The beast lands on all fours above him. Wolfgar digs claws into the beast's soft, exposed underbelly and rips them downward. Molten, life-giving liquid and ropey intestines spill into Wolfgar's face and torso. Excitement builds, knowing he's scored a mortal wound, and snarling, he rolls from under the creature and prepares to continue the fight. The dying animal turns, dropping more of its insides out, and lurches toward him. Wolfgar meets its slow charge head-on, grapples with it. They bite and claw at each other, the two gods of the forest deciding dominance and survival. 
The air around them heats, charged with the smell of blood and violence, life and death. Wolfgar's muscles tire fast, and despite the wounds he's already inflicted on his opponent, he knows he must end this fight or die. Wolfgar digs his clawed feet into the ground, knocks the animal's head up with his elbow, exposing its throat. The jugular pulses once, twice, and Wolfgar lunges forward and up, sinks his fangs into the throbbing area just under the chin. He vices his jaws shut, penetrating the thick fur, driving through the hide, and so he tastes blood, and his canines close around the thick trachea. A quick jerk of his head separates the two combatants and removes the last vestiges of life from his enemy. The creature falters, then sags, and Wolfgar steps away as it topples to the ground. The giant beast twitches once and then lies still. Wolfgar swallows the chunk of windpipe still in his maw and sits exhausted on the ground next to the corpse of the elk and his enemy. He takes a moment to tongue his muzzle clean, swallowing as much blood as he can before putting his snout down on the creature's fur. He sniffs, savoring the raw smell of food and follows the blood to the hole he made in the belly. He routes the wound, tearing at it with his teeth, and then begins to eat. It is his kill, and he will enjoy the first spoils. He tears off strips of flesh, uses his claws to dig out interior pieces, kidneys, the pancreas, and eats until he's sated. He leans back against the big animal and looks to the north, toward the den. You must kill the beast. It is done, he thinks. He knows she will be proud. Looking around, Wolfgar understands he'll need the help of his brothers to take these kills home, and he should begin the trek back. But for now, his full belly and tired body wish for sleep. And with the rich, coppery scent of blood engulfing him, he feels his eyes grow heavy and begin to close. A noise awakens him sometime later. His ears prick to attention and his nose wrinkles, scenting for the source, even as he yawns. Perhaps more prey has decided to make itself available. The light is all but gone and shadows fill more space than not. Whatever approaches does so from directly in front of him, and it is too far away to be clear what it is. The scent he finds on the air stirs something in him, a long-ago memory of brightness and pain. It reminds him of his mother during his weaning. She smells of the pack now, but it wasn't always so. Still, he is unalarmed, more curious than scared, and remains still. He soon discovers that it is actually them, and from what he can discern at this distance, one is bigger than the other, as indicated by heavier footfalls and harsh, uneven breathing. They try to disguise their approach by taking large, predetermined steps to avoid loose leaves and twigs. What is that, Dad? The small one asks. I don't know, Craig. It looks like a dead elk. Maybe a 
bear next to it. Now hush, whatever killed them might still be close. Wolfgar hears a metallic clack as the two approach. Their scent grows stronger in his mind, as well as the membranes of his nose. Once again, he remembers brightness so sharp it had hurt his eyes, and so much pain in his head and body, as if his brothers had pummeled him with thick branches. He lets out a low growl at the memory, and the interlopers come to a sudden stop. The bigger of the two positions himself in front of the little one, raises a shiny metal stick it holds, and points it in Wolfgar's general direction. Wolfgar shifts as he continues to sniff the air, scraping the ground with his feet, his claws digging furrows in the soft cover. What is that? the young one asks. Quiet! snaps the other. Their air changes to something wet and sticky, at once salty and sweet. It's the same smell fleeing prey leaves in its wake. Dad, there's something else there! I know, the bigger one says. I can hear it. They speak his mother's language. He cocks his head to the side, even more curious. She is the only one he's heard make sounds like that, for he and his siblings are unable. They can understand, but cannot copy, for their long snouts and thin tongues are ill-equipped for speech. He thinks perhaps his mother would like these two. He rises, stretches, and the two face him. They are close enough now that he confirms details about them. One is bigger, older. He senses this one is like him, a male, an alpha. The other is smaller, younger. Wolfgar sniffs, a deep inhalation, and decides these two are very similar to his mother indeed. He wants to approach, lick them in greeting, but instinct cautions him. Instead, he gives a sharp, authoritative bark in greeting. The stick comes up higher and sparks that chase away the shadows like lightning fly from the closest end. Seconds later, Wolfgar hears a sharp crack like a giant branch torn asunder in a storm and feels a sharp punch in his right shoulder that spins him and tosses him to the ground. Pain follows, and he loses a howl of agony as the fresh smell of fear mixed with his own blood sidles up his nose. He digs his claws into the dirt and tries to pull himself to the safety of the far trees, but his wounded arm is nearly useless. He manages to crawl over the bear and land on the other side, at least putting its body between him and them. You got it, Dad! The smaller one cries. You got it! It's just wounded, son. Stay back. Wolfgar hears the Alpha approach and watches as it steps around the bear, taking care not to come within reach. Wolfgar whimpers, his jaw opening and closing in muted pain. He doesn't understand why it hurt him, and he raises his left hand, pleading for help. The sharp claws that tip his fingers tick together like chopsticks. The stick comes up again, and the Alpha takes a step back. Wolfgar expects to see the sparks and feel more pain. He lowers his hand, sniffs the air. What is it, Dad? The little one stops behind the Alpha, stares around his body at Wolfgar. Product of the fallout, I imagine, the Alpha answers. I've never seen one before, not even in Doc's book. Do you think it's something new or 
Maybe something he missed? Some sort of mutation? I don't know, boy. Are we going to take it back? The alpha nods. Yes. Along with the bear and the elk. The meat from them will aid us through the coming winter. But we'll need help. Run back and get the doc. Tell him to bring John, Grant, and maybe Crenshaw. Along with the wagons. The little one nods and leaves. Short legs pumping. A good pup. Wolfgar thinks. Like his brothers. He looks back at the alpha and mules softly to him. The pain from his shoulder spreads out across his chest and down his hand. He flexes the fingers at the end of his injured arm, and the lengthened nails dig into the dirt. What are you, I wonder, the Alpha says, and squats down at Wolfgar's level. Doc hasn't got any pictures of you drawn up. Wolfgar turns his head away and howls. The sound is pitched low, frightened. In the distance, there comes an answering howl followed by another, then a third. Wolfgar chuffs quietly to himself and turns back to the Alpha, whose attention is now on the trees that surround him. The Alpha raises his stick and turns in a slow circle. More howls erupt from the darkened wood, closer this time. Wolfgar recognizes his family and knows they've come for him. He doesn't know how they knew he needed them, but that doesn't matter. They are in danger now, and he must help. He turns his head and watches the Alpha move away from him, closer to the tree line, looking for the sources of the howling. Wolfgar hears low breathing, stealthy footfalls in the woods around him. His family has arrived. Looking around, he sees one brother skulking from tree to tree, almost directly in front of the Alpha. His sister and other brother flank off in opposite directions, circling the Alpha, readying for the kill. Wolfgar howls again, and the Alpha startles at the sudden noise, twirls toward him, his brothers howl in unison, the three of them harmonizing, and the Alpha's fear trebles. The realization dawns that the Alpha cannot see his family, only hear them. Wolfgar issues a one-bark order. Attack. His brothers respond without hesitation. They close in on the target and under the cover of darkness, take him down without a quarrel. His sister lopes over to his position, sniffs his wound, then gently touches it with a claw. Wolfgar yelps and snaps at her ear in anger. She backs away for a moment, head low, and whimpers as she moves close again. This time, she licks the wound, cleaning it of blood and dirt. Wolfgar nuzzles his thanks against her neck, and with her help, is able to stand. Once up, he finds that he will be able to walk on his own. The pack stands over the fallen prey, and Wolfgar picks up the stick, sniffs. There is an acrid smell about it, offensive, that burns the inside of his nose. He throws it away with a growl. With another sharp series of barks and growls, he arranges for his brothers to drag the beast back to the den, and his sister to take the dead alpha. He hates to leave the elk. They could use the meat, but instinct tells him the alpha is more important. Wolfgar leads them unchallenged through the woods as a cohesive group. When they arrive at the den, their mother is there at the opening of the first cave, waiting. She trembles when she sees him approach and drops to her knees, swooning in relief. He approaches, head held low, whining, 
with his right arm hanging at his side. My son, my lover, she whispers. I thought you might be dead, that it might have killed you. She reaches for him, and he lets her envelop his hairy body and hold it against her smooth one. He sighs and droops to his knees to match her height. He hugs her, and then chuffs. His sister drops the dead elfin next to them, and his mother swivels her head slowly, looks at the corpse, an unknown expression in her eyes. Wolfgar pushes on the carcass and woofs at it. What is this? His mother refuses to look at him, buries her head in his good shoulder. Wolfgar pushes her to an arm's length and wolfs again. His meaning is clear. She shakes her head against him. The third wolf is harsher, more demanding. His mother finally nods and raises her head. She gestures for the pack to come closer. They gather around, recline on the ground at her feet. One brother drags the bear carcass up to their circle and begins to feed. The others join him, but Wolfgar hesitates, watching his mother. She nods her approval at him. You have killed the beast, my son. I am proud. Wolfgar pants, lips peeled back in something approximating a smile. She looks again at the dead alpha. Wolfgar cants his head at her, barks. He points to the dead alpha and then to his mother. Yes, we were once the same, she tells him. But now I am of this pack. Do you remember? You were born with them into white light and pain. They tried to kill us then, and they have tried to kill you again. She reaches out and grazes a hand over his wounded shoulder. Hardness fills her eyes at the sight of the blood on her hairless skin. I am no longer of them, Wolfgar. You must be wary, for they are dangerous creatures, more so than any of the others you've hunted. They are cunning, evil. They will kill us all. She hisses, hatred poisoning her voice. He listens to her words, and the pain in his shoulder speaks the truth of them. His memories, while still vague, reinforce his impressions. They hurt him then, and they hurt him now. He nuzzles his mother, licks her face. The dead Alpha is like her, but not. For she is the den mother, and revered above all others. His mother pulls his head away and looks him in the eyes, hers swimming with emotion, his flat with instinct. You must kill them, my son. All of them that you see, eat now, for your real hunt begins soon. Wolfgar throws his head back and howls his acquiescence to the night, a warning to any who can hear it. His muzzle dips toward the dead alpha jaw open, ready to devour. Today's episode featured a story by C. Brian Brown, Dominance. If you'd like more information on C. Brian Brown and his work, please visit cbrianbrown.net and follow him on Twitter at C. Brian Brown. Artwork for today's show was created by Stephen Matico. You can see more of Steve's work at ninthstory.com and his new website, which is currently under development, at wideeyedotter.com. 
Interact with Steve on Twitter at S underscore Matico. Stay tuned for a short Q&A with the author in just a moment. Big thanks to Caitlin Marceau for an amazing tale last week and to John Towers for the superb artwork. If you haven't checked out the story in the art, go to thewickedlibrary.com forward slash 603 to do that. Don't forget to visit our sponsors, Shadows at the Door, Rickert and Beagle Books, and SanitariumMagazine.com. Our friends over at Rickert and Beagle have a special event coming up on July 12th. You can join them at 2 p.m. on July 12th for a free acoustic performance with Artifact Records artist Seeming. Singer Alex Reed will also discuss and sign his book, Assimilate, A Critical History of Industrial Music. You can find more details in the links in the show notes. Please share the terror, share the show, and help us grow. The best support you can give us is to rate us in iTunes. Ratings are free. They mean a lot to us. Don't forget that starting July 2015, that's next month, we'll be putting out a monthly newsletter featuring news, an exclusive story, artwork, and more. And every month we'll be giving away a great wicked prize to one of our readers. Sign up at thewickedlibrary.com. And now, see Brian Brown. So today I have C. Brian Brown on with me, and we're going to talk a little bit about his story dominance and a little bit about his writing technique and what draws him to writing and everything. So first of all, I want to tell you, I thought it was a great story, and I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk about it. Well, thanks for having me. Happy to be here, and I'm glad you enjoyed the story. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Whenever I try to pick a, a story for the Wicked Library, I like to look for something that sets it apart from the normal genre type of horror story. So in this case, you have a character that is sort of kind of a werewolf, but sort of kind of not. Well, I've always been interested in the classic monsters, you know, vampires, werewolves, you know, and even zombies to a certain extent. When I sat down to write my take on the werewolf, I was like, I don't want... To do the whole duality of man thing where he changes back and forth and he's he's struggling with what he's done or what he is. And so it's just like, you know what, so we're just going to go ahead and make it a wolf man, period. End of discussion. This is what he is. Right. And so when I was writing it, I had to kind of think of how would I have an actual wolf man mm-hmm. with human intelligence not necessarily occurring naturally in nature. So... That's where the kind of the post-apocalyptic vibe came in. Yeah. So I was like, okay, so if we can do that, then we can get into, you know, maybe genetic mutation. But, you know, I don't really get into that, which, of course, there's a backstory to how he actually does come about. But that's for another discussion. Yeah. I mean, it's it's obvious that this is just a slice of life. It takes place in a much larger universe. And when we get to the end of the story, you know, you can tell that there's more going on. So you definitely have some room to come back and revisit it. You have a great scene in here where he has a battle with a bear. And, you know, I could really get a sense for the struggle and the fear that he has and there's the adrenaline rush, but at the same time behind that all is the survival, not only of himself, but of his pack. Well, right. And when you kind of flip it on your head, you have to figure if your main character is a person and he's got to go after the beast, you make it scarier with the vampire or the werewolf or whatever it happens to be. 
But when you're actually using the monster mm-hmm. as your main character, well, I shouldn't say the monster because he's not a monster, but, you know, perceived as what could be a monster. Right. What scares them? You know, what actually would scare that? You know, that type of creature, you know, you six and a half, seven foot wolf man with cloth <laughs> out to here. Right. What's going to scare him? Yeah. Well, you know, a poacher taking his food. And it just happens to be a bear that's still alive. And he knows it's big and he knows it's powerful. Yeah. Bears mark their territory and, you know, that one did. But he's the oldest. Again, you get into the pack mentality. He's the alpha male. It's his responsibility to deal with that threat. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, and the other scene that I thought really spoke in terms of feeling that terror is after he's shot and he's confused because he's like, well, wait a minute, you're, you're like my mother. I thought I could trust you. Why would you do this to me? And, and what's happening to me? And, you know, he's waiting to see, is he going to live? Is he going to die? Is he alone? And just to be in that moment is, you know, there's a visceral survival terror to that. I think anybody in that situation, you find yourself hurt, wounded, and you have whatever hurt and wounded you standing there. Yeah. And it's talking and he can more or less kind of understand what they're saying he gets the general idea and you're just waiting because you know that help is somewhere out there right and is it going to come in time right exactly and i think that is universal mm-hmm. not just for Wolfgar, but i could only imagine myself in a situation like that right i don't think i would perform with the same dignity that Wolfgar did. <laughs> I'd probably be crying and whining and weeping for my mommy, right? you know, which he obviously does not do, but you know, there's almost a little bit of Frankenstein's monster in that too, where he's misunderstood just because he looks different and he looks frightening, but everything he's trying to do is trying to be friendly with these people. Even after he's shot, he's like, you know, Hey, help me. Right. It's no, no secret and no surprise that, you know, we fear what we don't know. Right. They don't know what he is. They've never seen him before. They have no idea. And considering it's post-apocalyptic, can you blame them for shooting first, asking questions later? Right. So there's a lot of questions going on there, but humans fearing what they don't understand. I touch on that in another story that involves these particular creatures in the post-mortem press anthology, Fear the Abyss. Okay. The story's what's left behind. When everything is stripped away, what do we have left? Because that's actually told from a human point of view. Yeah. And one of the big things, you know, one of the big things is, you know, what we have left behind is fear. And superstition. Those are the things that we hold on to. Yeah. We don't hold on to hope. No. As a general rule, we kind of suck. So (laughs) we've proven that time and time again. We like to think that we're very highly evolved and intelligent. I guess we are to a certain extent, but when you strip away the things that that make you comfortable, when you strip away civilization, uh, you know, we just resort back to our baser elements. Right. Exactly. You get rid of our, you know, you take us out of our comfort zone and, you know, we fall apart. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me for writing, what, what is it that draws you to it and that drew you to writing and made you decide that it was, it was part of who you were and something you really needed to do? Well, I started off as a, as a reader and it's going to make it sound weird as as a very, and I still am an avid movie watcher, Mm -hmm. you know, the stories, you know, I grew up though during that era when you watched Betamax and VHS fight it out, then, you know, VHS and DVD, DVD and LaserDisc. Yeah. You know, so, but as a reader and then, you know, watching, you know, the visual storytelling through the movies, you know, I think you learn a lot about 
people, you know, through these other stories that you you get from the books and the movies and that it gives us a much greater sense of empathy. Yeah. You know, and that's what draws me to writing. You know, when I write and I have a story, I hope that somebody reads it and they're like, Oh, I can, I understand that. I, I identify with it. And I never thought that I could deal with it this way, or I could deal with it that way. Or, you know, I could just get out my gun and I could shoot this guy, you know? So, but, but that's what draws me to it. And that's why I do it. You know, I grew up middle-class white kid, didn't see, you know, black people until I was in high school, really, you know, so I had no connection to anybody outside my particular circle, except through books and through the movies that I was, that I watched. Yeah. So I think getting there, getting to high school and, you know, being thrown into this vast universe of, wow, who are you? But books, I think, helped me, you know have a better high school experience than, you know, people who don't read. No, that's a really good point because I mean, I think we're story machines and I think that that's the way that you really gain perspective and understanding of, of other people. You know, part of that too is to, to come at things from different perspectives and to see things in a way that you're not necessarily raised and predisposed to that. You, you can actually experience another culture, another idea, another person's way of looking at things through a story. Well, exactly. And that's, I mean, it's awesome. And I'm, I mean, I'm 40 now and I still read and I still learn. So I don't think it ever ends as long as you continue to read. Absolutely. But then again, you find that, you know, the kids nowadays, they don't want to read. I struggle to get my sons to read. Yeah. Um, And then you find those people, oh, I don't really read anymore. I don't think I've read a book since high school. I want to ask you, how are you still alive? Exactly. There's a large segment of our culture now that has a very short attention span. Well, you, I mean, obviously, you know, as we've we've, uh, mentioned a couple of times, you're a family man. Yes. It's not like you're hanging out in your basement writing 24 hours a day, seven days a week, which, you know, some of us would wish we probably could do. But right. what advice do you have for writers that have a full-time job, that have other responsibilities? Because I'm sure that you get probably hear the same thing that I do a lot, which is, you know, I don't have time to write. And right. I think that if you if something is important to you, obviously, you find the time for it. And I know that you have a family and I know how busy you are and you obviously have the time to sit down. What advice do you have for folks on how to manage their time better or how to create that time that they need in order to sit down and actually try to write something? Well, the big thing is, you know, you already kind of touched on it is, you know, if you want to do it, you're going to find the time to do it, but then you have to fight for it. I had to train my wife for lack of a better (laughs) Honey, I'm sorry. Don't kill me. (laughs) He means that in the best way possible. Not like training a dog. (laughs) But, you know, it's like, all right, I'm going to go right now. And okay, go ahead. But then five minutes later, I need you to do this. Or I need to go talk, you know, send the kids down here to talk to dad because whatever. Okay, no, that's not going to happen. Yeah. You need to stop that. And, you know, there was more than one large disagreement over that. I think I may have had it easier than some people because my wife is actually very supportive of me. You know, she goes to the conventions with me, you know, she feeds everybody at the table and, you know, she's always pushing me to write more, to get out, to do whatever I need to do to get the writing time in. Yeah. But again, I had to fight at first for that time to show her that I'm really seriously going to make a go of this. Then you also have to be flexible. My kids are getting older now and they're getting into more things. You know, they're playing baseball, they do jujitsu, they do karate. You know, they do all this. So 
you know, you have to be flexible. You have to morph with your family and, you know, whatever responsibilities you have. So now I write, basically my kids go to bed usually in between eight and eight 30. Mm-hmm. So I get to sit down anywhere from eight 30 to nine o'clock and write till I go to bed or, you know, do promotion or do whatever I need to do for the day. Yeah. And from eight 30 to 12. And then I go to bed about midnight. I get up at four something for work and it's wash, rinse and repeat. <laughs> Well, it sounds like um, if I'm picking up on it, a big part of this is buy-in that it's a team effort. It's not just you saying, okay, now I'm going to write. It's I'm going to write and this is why I'm, it's important to me. And hey, as a team, here's how we need to make it happen. It definitely helps because if you're going to spend hours away from your family writing and they're just completely not on board with it, that's going to be an issue. Yeah. You know, it's you. You know, so you have to come to some sort of agreement with your spouse, your girlfriend, your kids, you know, however it is. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that at first because I belonged to several writing groups. And six years ago, I would skip Saturday morning things with the family to go to a writing group. Yeah. You know, okay, we'll compromise. Uh, if you want to go to the zoo on Saturday morning and it happens to be a writing group morning, we'll go to the zoo. So, you know, there's definitely that give and take. Let me ask you this Is there any genre that you would like to write in that you've never written in yet. I kind of want to get into the steampunk scene just because I think they're neat. Yeah. You know, um, I've read some steampunk that I've enjoyed Mm -hmm. and I don't know if I could ever, I don't should say, I don't know if I could ever write it, but I'm not as, as versed in it as I'd like to be. So I'll probably read a lot more, continue to read. Mm Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I didn't grow up reading steampunk. Obviously, I grew up reading, you know, McCammon and King and Koontz and, mm-hmm. you know, F. Paul Wilson and all them people, you know, damn them. So, <laughs> I have, you know, a much more literary horror background than anything else as yeah. far as reading is concerned. So, but I, I would like to jump into steampunk. And, you know, if I could jump on the, uh, you know, the erotica, you know, having sex with Sasquatch or, you know, whatever <laughs> I do that for the money. If it would afford me the time to, you know, quit my corporate job, <laughs> right. but I don't write, I don't write erotica. Well, either I'm, <laughs> I'm apparently too realistic with it. Yeah. Because, you know, true story. Um, a writer friend of mine had me read, had me read a piece where she had, uh, two lovers. They had sex in the bathroom and they had all, they had both just taken showers. And, you know, it was like morning sex thing. And they mm-hmm. got up. Then the next thing, they're, they're dressed. They're going, oh, I'm like, well, didn't they clean up? <laughs> I didn't they clean their shit up. What's going on? <laughs> you, go to, you go to work like that? Right. And You're all dirty and sticky now. And I just got, that's not part of the illusion. Yeah. And I'm, well. <laughs> well, it's encouraging, man, because, you know, there's a lot of people out there I know that want to write, that have an idea for a story. And, and. You know, it's, it, I think it's, it's helpful to see people that succeed at it and, you know, that they're normal everyday people. It's not like, you know, we're, like you said, we're not all Stephen King. We're not Dean Koontz. We're, you know, we're writers that enjoy reading, enjoy writing and make a go at it because we've made the time in our schedule to do it. Well, right. And, you know, also I think writing is a, it's, it's a trench game now with, you know, the onslaught of, you know, the eBooks and the self-publishing and things like that. You know, there are just so many people out there doing it anymore. But like you said, eventually it will, it'll even itself out. And I know that. I just hope I'm not dead by that. <laughs> That's 
right. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot more complicated now. You, you, you can't just write a story. It's not enough to just put yourself out there. You now have to be able to tell a good story about why I should read your story. Well, right. It's always been, you know, the hardest part for me is the marketing aspect of it. Yeah. You have to market yourself more than you market your book. It helps if you have a good book behind it, mm-hmm. but it's not necessary anymore, at least to, to make money yeah. and get that initial jump. It's all about community building anymore. You know, that's what I'm starting to realize is you you get enough like-minded people together that like the same type of thing and are hard workers and want to put out a good product and you build that team and, you know, you all help each other out. And I think that that's, that's kind of where the future is going for this. Well, yeah, I, I agree. You know, I have seen several authors binding together and putting work together in collections and things like that. And then there's that phrase, what is it? Um, a rising tide raises all ships. Yeah. And I think that is a mentality that we have to, to adopt. Yeah. You know, and I know that here in central Ohio, where I'm at, you know, we've got a bunch of um, small press and self pub offers and different things like that. And, you know, we have gotten to the point to where we're, we've gotten together and we're doing events together. You mm-hmm. know? And, you know, we're promoting each other. So if so-and-so can't go, then their books are still there. And whoever is there can sell those books. Yeah. To continue and to, you know, you help each other. You have to help each other. Well, hey, I didn't mean to keep you on the phone for so long. So how about I do this? I'll, I'll wrap it up so you can actually get some writing and stuff done tonight. All right. That'll uh, work for me. So, hey, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk about your writing process and your thoughts on writing and, and especially talk about your story. Obviously, if folks have heard today's story. They want to know more about what you write and what you do. What are some of the other projects that you have coming up that people can keep an eye out for? Coming up, I've got a short story coming out through Hydra Publications. Um, it's called An Unfettered Life. Um, it's as of yet, an untitled dystopian anthology. Uh, I believe it's supposed to come out later this year. And then I'm also working on um, the sequel to They Are Among Us. Um, it's called At Dawn They Sleep. Um, hopefully that'll be out about mid-next year. Um, and then we have a collection of short stories coming out uh, through Postmortem Press. Um, I think it's called 44 Lies through from by 21 authors or something like that. Oh, yeah. That's also on the horizon. And at this point, it's just more writing and more writing other than those. Yeah. And, you know, you're pretty prolific on your blog. I mean, I, you're one of the more steady folks that, that I know that uh, is a writer and also keeps up with their blog. So people can follow you on that as well. Yep. And uh, where's the best places for folks to uh, connect with you and interact with you? Well, the blog, like you said, which is just cbrianbrown.net. Um, I'm, I'm trying to post there regularly, you know, a couple times a week now. Um, interviews with other authors and things like that, because, you know, like you, I'm interested in how people work and the kinds of things that they do. And authors are funny people. I enjoy, you know, talking to them. So, <laughs> yes. and then other than that, I post on Facebook, my author page a lot there, but that's usually a lot of one-offs when I'm pissed off at my corporate job or whatever. I'll just <laughs> sling something out. So, so those two places are, you know, the big ones where you can get a hold of me. Awesome. All right. Well, there'll be links and everything in the show notes. So if uh, folks want to connect and check you out on Twitter and Facebook and uh, on your blog, there are going to be links in the show notes. And I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to read one of your stories and obviously look forward to having you back on again in the near future. Well, I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here and I would love to come back. Excellent. 
Dominance by C. Brian Brown. Copyright C. Brian Brown, 2014-2015. Artwork for today's show was created by Stephen Matico. Interact with Steve on Twitter at S underscore Matico. Narration. Dramatic reading performed by Daniel Foytek. That's me. The voice of the librarian was Nelson W. Piles. The voice of Victoria Bigglesworth-Hayes was Amber Collins. The Wicked Library theme, written and performed by Anthony Rousick of Novus. Other music featured in this episode was performed by Dark Mood. Visit them at www.facebook.com forward slash darkmoodmusic. You can also pick up their music at www.cdbaby.com forward slash artist forward slash darkmood. Other music was performed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and used with his permission. As always, check the show notes for titles and links to the music. The Wicked Library is a Hicks on Fabulous production. Full show notes with links and artwork can be found at www.thewickedlibrary.com forward slash 604. Until next time, this has been Daniel Foytek. Go ahead, leave the lights on. That's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.